This morning I'm going to talk about and open up something that, um, when I say open up, it might be a little bit of a Pandora's box, I guess, but um, I've noticed there's, there's been some debate on Facebook, and there's been, I don't want to talk necessarily doctrinally, but I, I would like to just walk through something, um, at, at least open it up and, and maybe bring some things to our attention as a new covenant body of believers um, I want to talk about grace much more. There's a King James Version that says, where sin abounded, grace much more did abound. Have you familiar with that scripture? And uh, so um, there's, there's been some, it's amazing to me, the biggest fights I've ever seen on Twitter and on Facebook almost always have to do with politics and religion. And sometimes they sort of intermingle and they're ugly, but... Um, I just don't think Jesus would be a part of that. I mean, I don't think he's wanting to fight. If you're, if you're finding a way to separate with someone else, then you're missing the point altogether because the whole plan of salvation was reconciliation and to bring us back together. And as a matter of fact, the word together, if you split it up, would say these words, to get her. Right? When the thief on the cross looks at Jesus and says, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Remember, you can split that up. Remember it means put me back where I was. Put me back in my first estate. And so anytime that we take, I don't want to take such a strong stance on anything that I draw a line and say, I'm on this side. If you're on that side, we're divided. I don't want that. What we need to learn to do as new covenant believers is to dissolve the line, the imaginary line that exists between us and them. There should be no us and them. It's just us. The Bible says that while we were yet in our sins, while we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. He did not die for the do-gooders and left out those that didn't. And he didn't die for the ones that had the theology figured out and not the ones that did He died for all of us. And all of us were found because of the law under sin. And he died. The Bible says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling, reconciling the world unto himself. While we were yet sinners, while we were still missing the mark, while we were still under the curse of law, Jesus died so that if by one man's sin we were all found under the law, then, uh, under the law and under the, under the curse, then by one man's obedience we could all be found in righteousness. And it, you, it, it, it becomes very easy um, to, to hear, there, like there are terms like this, hypergrace. I actually love the term hypergrace because believe it or not, it's in your Bible. I'm going to prove it to you this morning. It is literally in the scripture I'm going to read to you this morning. It's the word hypergrace. Okay. Don't get mad at me. You all, you all, some of you are already looking at me kind of funny. But let's read first. Let's study first. Let's do a proper exegesis of scripture and see what is this. Here's what hypergrace is not. Hypergrace is not a license to go and live like hell and do anything you want to do and say, well, God's got it all taken care of. I'm straight. That's an immature view of grace. A mature view, a view of gra grace is divine enabling. It's unmerited favor and divine enabling. Literally what mercy does is forgive you of what happened, but grace empowers you to become what God says you are. So a mature view of grace is not, oh, cool, God's got it covered so I can go act like a, 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 per a bad person. <laughs> a heathen, as Barbie says. I ironically... It's funny that you brought up the word heathen because the people that, that Paul was speaking to in this scripture in Romans are what they called heathens. Did you know that? They're Gentiles. I just want to bring out a point. Here's the thing about separating the line. Did you know that Abraham, before he was Abraham, which was the father of the Jewish nation, the very first Jew ever before God created a people, did you know Abraham was a Gentile? 
I want you to think about this. Because the same division that happened 2,000 years ago between the Jews who thought that they had everything by covenant because of an Abrahamic covenant wanted to disclude anybody else, including the Greeks and the Romans and anybody they consider Gentiles because the Gentiles were not a part of the Abrahamic covenant. But they are a part of the new covenant because the Lord decided to include everyone. He literally took the pencil eraser with his cross and erased the line that, that, that separated us. But Abraham did not start out as a Jewish person. He started out as a Gentile. God made, he's the, he, God made with his own mouth, he, he created a nation from the loins of Abraham. So and until, we can, until we can properly understand Scripture and say, there's no longer an us and them, then what we'll do is we'll become elitist. And it happens in the church too. It happens in church. Our dogma is better than yours. Our doctrine is better than yours. Our denomination is better than yours. We're the ones that have it figured out. You don't have it figured out. So we're God's favorite and you guys are the peons. And as long as that kind of attitude exists in the church, we're never going to really affect culture the way that God's called us to do. But it's the moment that we say, forget about everything that divides us because what unites us is so much better and so much stronger than anything that divides us. This is a lot to say. It's a lot to say. It may take some time. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read from the Message Bible just because I like the way it's sort of brought out. If you want to follow along with a different, different version, no problem. Romans 5. This is Paul talking about entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, which has set us right with him and make us fit for him. We have it all together with God because of our master, Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. Isn't that amazing? When we finally open our heart to the Lord, we find out his heart's been open to us the whole time. It's really more a revealing of a reality than it is inviting Christ in. Now, I do believe in that, and I do believe in, uh, I, I understand the scripture that says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, uh, but it doesn't say I stand at the door of your heart and knock. That's a whole different thing. It's just been taken to mean something that it really isn't. Amen. Is everybody still with me? My God, the Easter crowd was better last week. <laughs> totally kidding. That's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment he's already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us. And how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. You could just mark that in your Bibles. We cannot get enough containers to contain everything that the Holy Spirit wants to pour into our lives. Isn't that wonderful? That's good news. Spirit, soul, mind, and body. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. There's an old saying, they belonged before they believed. You ever heard that one? One person. They belong, belonged before they believed. Jesus' disciples belonged before they believed. He called them before they believed. And he made them belong. 
You want to be a good evangelist? A good evangelist does not stand on the street corner saying, you're going to hell. That's not a good evangelist. That's dumb theology and it's mean. Don't get mad at me. Just bear with me. At least stay for this service. That's mean. That's not nice. That's mean. It's not even true. It's bad theology. Good evangelism it is, I'm going to love you where you're at. I'm going to love you like you are. I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm literally not going to just try to meet you in church, but I'll come into the streets. If you're a harlot, you can come to me. If you do this, do that. Whatever the sin is, it will not separate you from me. I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to love you out of that place into your true identity. Not that you stay there, but you can come out of that. Into your, but, but you have to feel belong first. People, my father said for so many years, People will not care how much you know unless they first know how much you care. How many times have you heard someone preach and speak and preach and speak and you didn't know them and they were mean and they were dogmatic and they were telling you how you were going to hell and everything you do is bad and everything you do is wrong. Does anybody want to hear that mess anymore? Did it ever make you feel, man, I really feel a part of this family? No, it made you want to get up out of the doors and never come. And that's what happens. People don't want to come to the church. I said on Facebook, and I said last week, and the Lord spoke to me, people do not run from God. They run from our false images of God. I would even say people that consider themselves atheists are not atheists against the possibility that God exists. Most of them are, are, are against what people say is God, which is judgmental and mean and nothing like what he really looks like. Because what he looks like is Jesus, and Jesus is love, and God is love, and love is patient, and love is kind, and love doesn't keep score of wrong. Real quiet for a new covenant church. I saw, I actually was scrolling through social media yesterday, and I saw a person was holding a sign on the street corner and said, Jesus loves you, and so do I. How can I help? And I thought, now that's evangelism. You're looking at a person that's preached to 50,000 people at a time. You're looking at somebody that's preached and thousands and thousands have been born into the kingdom because of the ministry God used through me. I understand what real evangelism is and I understand what it isn't. And you will never scare someone into relationship. If you have to use fear, then it's manipulation. And the Lord does not need to manipulate you into a relationship with him. And if you think he does, it's just because you've heard it wrong for so many years. The truth of it is he loves his people into relationship. And what, what, his, what his issue, if you want to say God has an issue, is he doesn't have enough new covenant voices that will stand up and tell people the truth. God is good, and God loves you, and he's for you. And by the death of his son on the cross and resurrection, he's made you right with him. There is therefore now nothing that stands between you and him. He's taken the handwriting of ordinances. He's taken the law that spoke against us. He nailed them to his cross. He blotted it out, and now he says, I want to include you in my family. The problem is the spirit and the bride say come, and there's not enough of the bride saying come. And in most of our churches, there's not enough spirit heard to say come. What they hear is I'm never coming back because they've scared the hell out of me or tried to scare me out of hell, I guess maybe is a better way to say it. And that's what happens. You've be it can't be that way anymore. It's... It, it, I, we've known this, and we've studied this, and we've believed this, and the Lord's shown us this for you. But now it's time that this is declared from the mountaintops. God loves you. He's not angry. He's not mad. He's not sending hurricanes to judge the homosexuals down in Louisiana. It sounds funny. Somebody giggled about it. That's actually something that people thought in this city that wanted to take me to task because I said, God's not killing people with hurricanes. Do you actually think that God gets that mad? 
He just can't handle himself anymore. He's red-faced with anger, and so he's just going to kill. He's going to kill the gays down it. Come on, get out of here with that stuff. He's not like that at all. God is exactly like Jesus. He's only exactly like Jesus. Everyone that saw who God was or a part of him only saw in part. The only full revelation of God that's ever been seen is the life of that man, and Jesus never did that to anybody. The only people Jesus had a problem with were religious hypocrites that were trying to scare people and manipulate people with control and fear. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for the sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person that's worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. The King James Version of this is, is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. Well, this is the quietest this church has ever been. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plotting prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. You know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma that we're in. First sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God and in everything and everyone. But the, but the extent of this, the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying what God had said still had to experience this termination of life, the separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who's going to get us out of it. Thank you, God, for the one that got us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There is no comparison between the death-dealing sin and the generous life-giving gift. No comparison. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery that life makes, sovereign life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man, Christ Jesus, provides? My goodness. My goodness. My, I want you to reach out and take a hold of this wonderful life that he provides. It's not an excuse to go live the same way you've lived. It's a release and freedom to live and be what you were always called to be. 
And to know that if we happen to mess up, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. But I'm not thinking about sin. If your focus is sin, then you always find yourself in death because death becomes by sin. But if your focus is always on him, even if you fall down, your eyes are on Father. He picks you up. He dusts you off and say, keep living. I still love you. I still have purpose for you. The most powerful thing about every one of you this morning is you woke up. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all in this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us all out of it. That's as plain as it gets. But more than just getting us out of trouble, and that's the focus. The focus can't be he got me out of it, so if I do it again, he'll get me back out. No, that's an immature understanding of grace. A mature understanding of a grace is he's empowered me to be what he's always called me to be. He's empowered me to see myself the way that he sees me. And if I see myself the way that he sees me, I can walk in newness of life without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation. And John picks it up in his book and says, perfect love, which is mature love, casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. This is why I dressed up today. I thought it might make you like me a little more. It doesn't? Do you like me less? You don't like me less? Okay, good. You, every once in a while, you just got to, you know, my wife told me the other day watching some men on TV on sports, she said, you need to dress up some at church. I didn't know that it was a joke. And I actually, she said, ooh, you look good. Do I look like a clown? No. God, thank God. So I thought if I dressed up today, you'd be a little more receptive. I will be back in my jeans next week. I've worn the same two pairs of jeans the last eight months every Sunday. Next Sunday, I'm starting over again. See if I can get it for nine months. It's about who I am? Okay, awesome. But it needs to be a little bit about what I wear because it softens the blow. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. This is insane. You, and I, 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 let, me, let me talk about who is writing this, by the way. Yeah. Can we talk about it? This is Paul. Hebrew name Saul. When he gives his pedigree, he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, concerning the law, I'm perfect. I keep it all. I know it all. He studied at the feet of one of the greatest teachers of his time. What he went about doing in his early ministry is exactly what a lot of churches do, killing everyone that called themselves Christians simply by faith. Not by works, by faith. This is what he did. He looked for the opportunity to stamp out this new religious sect that we know as Christianity. This crazy, wild 30-year-old is going around telling people that Father loves them, that God loves them, and that he sent his son to die for them and to be the propitiation. We're going to stop that because the only way to God is to keep the laws, is to keep the Sabbath, is to keep all the stuff that was written. If we do it good enough and we keep ourselves righteous enough, then we separate ourselves from the ugly ones and the bad ones and the sinful ones that can never do it because they're not. This is the same man that meets Jesus, is knocked off his horse, and is writing this to the Romans. This is not some new age philosopher. This is a man that kept every bit of the law, understood it, and that's why God used him to translate and, uh, and help us to understand, look, there's therefore neither no Jew nor Gentile, no bond nor free, male nor female. I could say black or white, 
Republican or Democrat, none of that stuff. All those are dividing lines. And what Jesus did at the work of the cross was, was to erase every line that divided us and separated us. And so that he could call all of us his one big beautiful family. Black sheep, white sheep, good sheep, bad sheep, whatever, call us a part of his family. That's the call. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness called grace. Romans 5.20, Paul speaks of God's grace here and in 17 as superabundant. But did you know that he actually adds the prefix hooper, which is where we get our word hyper, making grace hooper perusio, which actually is translated specifically super hyper abundant grace. Hyper grace is literally in your Bible. There's an endless fountain of grace that has been opened for us in Christ. This is not a license. I'm not writing license and saying, now, just go do whatever the heck you want to do because God's got it covered. No, that's, that's immature and that's excuse. And that's, that's not, that's not a pro I, I wouldn't give Rachel the keys to my truck right now because she's immature and doesn't know how to drive it. And I would be doing her harm. But when she grows up, then I can let her see, hey, you can have these keys now and it'll get you from A to B. A lot quicker than walking there. What I'm trying to do is help you understand grace, understood with, with, mature, with a mature heart. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't just say forget about everything that was. It does say that, but it says, hey, look unto the Father. It, it's not about afterlife. I need to sit down. My back's been hurting. Is that okay? It's not about the afterlife. Jesus didn't hardly preach a whole lot about the afterlife. I know you think he did, but he really didn't. Not much. You know what he did talk about? The kingdom of heaven at hand. He did talk about destruction, and he talked about where the worm, and, worm dies not and the fire's not quenched, but he also said that that would happen in that generation, and it did. We'll leave that there for now. Jesus didn't talk a whole lot about the afterlife. You know what he talked about? Heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, boys, the kingdom of God. He said these words, the kingdom of God is within you. Those are the things that Jesus talked about. And the purpose of grace is to give us the opportunity to see ourselves the way that he sees us. You know what grace really is for? Is to reestablish covenant communion with Father. The whole purpose of grace, the purpose of grace is not so you can go out, do things that are really bad that you know you shouldn't do, and well, God's got it covered because I've got, no, that's not grace. That's taking advantage of something. That's not, that's not what this is. What grace is, Grace is, is, is what Jesus gives us to afford us the opportunity to come back into covenant communion with Father. Really wanted, what, he wanted, what he wanted to do was bring us back to what Adam lost. That's why Paul compares. He, he contrasts the first Adam with the last Adam. And the first Adam, what did he have? He walked in the garden with God. He communed with him. He communed with the Father. He was in such communion with him that whenever he named animals, the Lord said, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. One mind, one voice. One understanding and perfect communion. Until one day the serpent beguiled Eve, Eve beguiled Adam, and they, and they partook of a fruit. Here's the fruit that they partook of. The fruit is the, the, the belief that I have to do something to be like my father. The enemy said to Eve, he says, Hath God said that in the day you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, but God knows you will not surely die because God knows that in the day that you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. 
And so what he did was he just twisted a little bit of what God said and made them believe I have to do something to be what I already am. The reality was they were already like God. The Bible clearly says he made them in his image and after his likeness. And so what Jesus came to do, was what Adam lost in the garden, Jesus came to win in the garden and to undo everything that the first Adam had done. And what the first Adam had done is lost covenant communion with Father. Jesus did not come so you can have your mansion in glory, and I hope you get it. Invite me and make sure there's a fatted calf killed because I like steak, and you know I like rolls. This guy texted me the other night. You know how, how mean some people are? He texted me a basket of rolls, hot buttery rolls. G did right there in the middle of our church with the Logan's peanut bucket right beside it and texted me. It was peer pressure because two and a half hours later, guess where I was sitting eating my own rolls? The, and I texted it back to him the same picture, and he said, peer pressure got you every time. <laughs> it was good, though, man, and rolls. I had four of them. I worked hard. I ran on the treadmill a lot. The purpose of grace is to call us back into perfect communion with Father and to empower us to be who we were always called to be. Period. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death. What did I say last week? I said the only thing death has left is a voice. And if you listen to that voice and gravitate towards it, you're going to find yourself in death. If you listen to the voice of death, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you keep eating of that fruit, you're going to put yourself right back under the law of sin and death, and there will be death. If you say no to that voice and listen to the voice of Father calling you to the tree of life and partake only of the tree of life before long, that voice will fade, and it will be as if you've walked out of your very own tomb in the same way that Jesus walked out of his tomb when he rose from the dead. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together through the Messiah, invites all of us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Amen. I'm going to finish a few of my notes, and we'll see how much further we can get. just want to kind of settle this debate. I want you to understand that you're worthy. I want you to understand that God loves you. I want you to understand that God is good. I want you to understand what the purpose of grace is. What's that? Enablement. Remember the Bible speaks of grace, grace, grace to grace, grace for grace. My dad used to preach a message called uh, unmerited favor for the purpose of divine enabling. That's what grace is. Super abundant grace, hyper grace. The, the Bible literally says if you want to take and compare the two, imagine a leaf being sin and death and a forest of trees being grace. That's how you compare the two. There is no comparison. Where, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Where sin was, grace was much, much, much more. Where sin was a tree, grace is the forest. Where sin is a, is a drop of water, grace is the ocean. I mean, there is no comparison between the failure and the fall of man to the, to, the, to the grace that God gave through the death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of Jesus Christ. The gospel is bigger than we think it is. 
And what it does is when we actually see it and see him as he is, then we begin to see ourselves the way we are. We begin to love ourselves, and then when we love ourselves, we can love our neighbor, period. How can you love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself? Most people that have a problem with their neighbor, they superimpose upon their neighbor something that is a, something they consider lacking within. They do the same thing with God. Hello? I like quiet Sundays. It's imperative in our faith and maturation process that we come to terms not with just what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. This is not blasphemy or heresy. This is simply maturity. So when I ask you what your beliefs are about sin and grace, you tell me what they are. Are they because it's what you've always heard? Have you done an exhaustive study? Has the Spirit of God shined a light on this reality? Or is it just what you've always heard and because you've heard it for so long, it must be true? Because I'd like to challenge anybody that thinks that they know something because another person has told, include myself. Go study this stuff for yourself. Look, you have this stuff at your fingertips right now. Everybody can study any of the stuff that I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about a book here or there written by what you might consider a quack. I'm talking about most, what I'm talking about was believed not only by the early apostles, but by most of the early church fathers. It was preached. This is all that was preached. The whole afterlife thing really didn't come in into being preached until several hundred years after Jesus. And then it was abused by the Catholic church to control people. They wanted their money and they wanted their, <laughs> it's true. Not against Catholics. God loves Catholics like he loves me. I'm just telling you the truth. It'd be, it'd do, you'd do yourself a service to go and study church history. Yeah. Go back to the early fathers. You're going to find out there's a whole lot, lot of stuff that you believe that you can't find in the scripture. And just because it's been said a million times and for 500 years doesn't make it true. If we wholeheartedly hold to things we believe is true only because we believe them, we're doomed to remain gullible and ineffective in our lives, especially as it pertains to the kingdom. The greatest prophets and philosophers in history dared to challenge the status quo. In fact, the greatest of all the prophets, the very namesake of our faith, Jesus the Christ, regularly challenged the status quo and they plotted to kill him for it. Jesus would say stuff like, you've heard it said by them of old time. He literally was referencing what God gave to Moses and then he would say, but I say. He would contrast what he said based on what they had always believed for thousands of years, Barbie. And according to what they'd been taught and according to what Moses had said, they were doing things right. And Jesus would say, you've heard, you've heard it said by them of old time, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, if any man smacks you on the cheek, turn to him your other cheek. Right. Yeah. Literally directly contrasted what the Old Testament says, what the Old Covenant says. Crazy. He did this again and again and again. He was willing to challenge it, and the reason was because there was always an incomplete, imperfect picture of God. And the only perfect picture of God that we've ever seen is Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. The Scriptures speak of the Word of God, but Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was not the Bible, but in the beginning was the Word. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's Scripture. That is actually your King James that you love so much. That's your Scripture. And he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the Word which would be made flesh. He's talking about Jesus Christ. The only perfect picture of Father that has ever been seen is in the life of that man. Period. 
He is the express image is the way Paul puts it. The express image. He's everything God ever wanted to say about himself. He said in the life of Jesus. His disciples sat around one day and said, can you show us the Father? And Jesus said, have I been with you this long and you've, you don't know? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the reason is they were confused, Barbie, because they were Jewish men, because they were told, Father's like this, and you have to do this to get this. And Jesus said, no. I mean, he, Jesus reveals the heart of Father. Amen. We have arrived at a very crucial moment in time where our faith cannot be passive. It's time and high time to aggressively pursue truth and to be willing to put to death beliefs and systems of belief that have long kept us powerless. It's time for it. I don't care how old it is or how many times you've heard it. If it's not his word and if it's not truth, it's time to put it to death. It needs to be done. It needs to happen in this generation. There has to be a body of believers that stand up and begin to speak truth and not care about consequences. No more time for sparkling words that, produce, that don't produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is not the result of a work program, but simply the fruit that grows on the tree of surrender. Say it again. The fruit of the Spirit is not the result of a work program. Fruit of the Spirit does not come by you doing good, keeping good, and keeping statutes and commandments. The fruit of the Spirit is simply the fruit that grows on the tree of surrender. Surrender your heart, surrender your life, surrender your possible belief systems. When God started opening up things to me about this, it was about 20 years ago, and I'll never forget, I laid down because it challenged me to my core. It challenged everything I had ever believed, everything I'd ever taught, everything I'd ever heard. And I said, Father, I'm willing right now to lay down everything that I think that I know for you to teach me truth. And when he began to show it to me, it blew my mind and it blew my theology completely. But I began to study exhaustively hours. Elizabeth will tell you hours and hours and hours and hours every day for years and years and years. And, and after I would study, Father, make this real to me. Shine your light on me. And he would quicken things inside of me. This is what this is. This is what this is. So what are we willing to surrender? Dare we take the chance to set aside long-held opinions and seek truth? That's the trail we need to blaze. Verses 12 and 14. I'm confused. What was that? Are you uh, coming in? Lord, there's a door right there. Therefore, as through one man's sin centered into the world... And death through sin, and so death passed into all men, for, for, for that all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Don't you think about this? Adam did not transgress the law. There was no law. Law didn't come to Moses. There was no, what did he trespass? He trespassed, Father had said, don't eat of the tree. But what is the tree? It wasn't simply taking, partaking of a tree. It was believing something other than what Father had told him. That's where he failed. That's where he missed the mark. There was no law given. Moses wouldn't come for 2,500 years, or at least. He, did, he didn't transgress the law. 
He believed a voice other than father's voice. And father's voice was, you're good, you're just like me, you're made in my image, you're made after my likeness, and what you believe, I believe, and what you say, I say, and let's walk together and commune together on a daily basis in this garden where everything that you need is provided for. And the transgression was, he believed a voice other than father's. He did not break the law. There was no law. Adam's sin was not breaking the law, and it's interesting to point out that Eve is not mentioned even one time in this whole discourse. The sin was Adam's. So what is it, or what was this sin that separated Adam from the Father and fell upon all mankind? It was not eating a piece of fruit. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. So he lied to her, made her believe that her eyes were closed. And you shall be as gods. They were already as God because they were the children of God and knowing both good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw it the way that he saw it, in other words, when she aligned her vision, she aligned her focus with, with the enemies, with the serpents, instead of with fathers, she took of the fruit. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. How long did they live before then? Who knows? But all we know is before then they didn't wear fig leaves, but they didn't know they were naked because their focus was not as introverts, or it was not turned inward. Their focus was Father. And as long as his focus is Father, and that's all we look at, we don't see sin, and we don't see nakedness, and we don't see missing the mark. And that's the same point Paul is trying to make in the New Covenant. Look, we do not carry around a sin consciousness because a sin consciousness is going to bring about death. But if we're God conscious, if we're conscious of him and we're conscious of this reality and we partake of this fruit and we commune on a daily basis with his spirit, then we understand that we're children, we're sons and daughters of the Father. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. I love the fact that even after they missed it, they still heard his voice. Thank God that his voice is so powerful that even after they miss it, they still hear the voice of the, of the Lord God walking. Aren't you glad that when you mess, it, mess up, when you miss it, when you sin, whenever you do whatever, you can still hear his voice? He's still walking where he was always walking. He never left his first estate. We did, but he didn't. He's still there. He's still walking. He's still inviting us into communion with him. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said, where are you? He said, I heard your voice walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid it myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Inferring, I'm not the one that told you that. You listen to a voice other than mine. I've never told you you're naked. I've never said you're without. I've never said that you're unrighteous. I've never said that you're unclean. I've never said those things. If you think those things, it came from a voice other than mine. That is the inference made here. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the, woman, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? She said, The serpent beguiled me. And the Lord said to the serpent, We can skip on down. 
Adam's sin was not breaking the law. There was no law given. It seems clear that his sin was listening to and believing a voice other than father's. Until now, he walked with the voice of God. Now, for the first time, he fears the voice of God. The welcoming, calming, soothing, loving voice is now something he's afraid of. And the reason he's afraid of it is because he's, he's heard a different sound. He's heard a different voice. My objective this morning is to help you hear the voice of the Father saying, you're worthy and you're righteous and you're holy. And where sin may have abounded, grace superabounded. Where there was a whole lot of sin, there's a whole lot more grace. Where there was a whole lot of missing the mark, I've made things right. And it's not because you did things right. It's not because you did things wrong. It's because of that one man who opened wide the gates and said, look, this is Father's heart. Walk on in. And the moment you open your, he said, the moment you open your doors to him, you realize his doors have always been open to you. The flaming sword in the Garden of Eden was just as much about find, helping us find the way back as it was keeping us from anything. His sin or missing the mark, Adam's, was more about the break in relational trust than do's and don'ts. What Jesus came to restore was not the law because he fulfilled that. He came to restore the relational trust that was violated and broken by the first Adam. The whole purpose of Jesus' ministry was perfectly dramatized in the parable of the prodigal son. The father was long awaiting the return of his son. He never left the garden. Just like father never left the porch, but he left the porch light on. It was called a flaming sword. Because he knew at some point, son's going to realize, wait a minute, father's better than this. Even his servants have plenty enough food to eat and some to spare. I'm going back to Father's house. I'm, a, I'm going back to the place where his doors are open up. I'm going back to the place. You've heard me preach the prodigal father a, a few weeks back. Jesus never preached on living good to get to heaven. He preached and demonstrated the way back to the Father. Amen. Amen. The end goal was never mansions. The goal was restoration and reconciliation. The perfect relationship between father and sons and daughters. That was, that was and is the goal. The sin was hearing and believing any voice other than the father. Jesus came to show us what the father looked like and to give us a way back to his garden where we can walk again with his voice and in the cool of the day, in a garden where things grow naturally. What Adam lost in a garden, <clears throat> Jesus won in a garden. <coughs> where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And if you want to continue to focus on sin, that's your, that's your right and that's your privilege. You can do that. And you can guarantee, it's, it's just as if saying, here death, come into my life. I'm going to focus on sin, so I'm going to invite death. Because death always follows sin. But if we turn from that, if we leave those things which are behind and look into that which lies ahead, we say, hello life, hello heart of the Father. I see that, I'm going into that, and I'm leaving the voice of sin and death. I will not allow that to trap me or entrap me anymore. I'm going to walk with the voice of the Father in the cool of the day. And when you hear the voice of the Father, you hear things like, you're my beloved. You're the apple of my eye. You're righteous. You're holy. You're redeemed. It amazes me in a church like this, I still have to try to convince people how worthy they are. Amen. Come soften the blow a little bit, William. Will you play keys for me? Where sin abounded, where there's a whole lot of sin, there's a whole lot more grace. Grace super abounded. Literally hyper grace. When I say literally, I'm talking about from the Aramaic, the word is literally hyper grace. Don't let that word scare you. 
We're mature Christians. We're not trying to get grace so we can just go live any, any way we want to and do whatever we want to. No, well, God's got it covered. No, we're not like that. That's what an immature person does. A mature person says, I'm going to walk with Father, and grace empowers me to be who he's called me to be. And if I happen to mess up, if I happen to miss the mark, if I happen to do one of those things, I, God's got it covered. doesn't mean that I know that he's got it covered in the back of my mind, so I'm just going to go do it. No, that's exploiting grace. That's not what we're called to do. It's saying, but if I, if, I, if I did mess up, when I did make a mess, even when I made a mess, when I was ungodly and not living for him, he still died for me anyways. He get, that's the way he showed me his love. When I wasn't worthy of anything, he considered me worthy and gave the life of his son. That's a pretty big deal. We're sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Let's all stand. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this generation that needs to hear the truth. And I pray that you open the hearts and minds of your people. I thank you that you're causing us to become mature, mature enough to, to hear, mature enough to study, mature enough to sit before you and listen to your spirit, mature enough to believe when what you say maybe contradicts something we've long held as truth. Help your body to see themselves, Father. Help your, your people to see themselves as sons and daughters. Not, not wretches, not sinners saved by grace, but just saved by grace. I don't think we could ever put into words, Lord. As a matter of fact, we know we can't put into words the fullness of what you did for us. But I pray that this generation be the generation that comes the closest to see the magnitude of your love that you, that you gave to us in the life of your son. I thank you that we're sin abounded, grace abounded, Lord. Not as a license to live like hell, Lord, but as a liberating truth to cause us to walk in our true identity as sons and daughters. We are your sons, we are your daughters, and we carry your name, and we want to carry your name well. Help us to love your people well. Help us to love ourselves well. Father, let us not contradict your love and go out and judge and condemn everybody that we come in contact with but with your love help us to, to be active in dissolving the lines that separates us from them that we can bring them into the kingdom if the line that separated you from us and you were willing to dissolve that and put on flesh, put on a robe of flesh and come to us in the person of Jesus then surely we can dissolve the lines that separate us meet your people where they are love them where they are and love them out of that hellhole that they may be living in. Lord, free your people from mindsets that have kept them bound. Liberate your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You're free.